Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning. My name is Melissa. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Melissa. Wow. Um... I've been sober since September 7th, 1996. My home group is the Glacier Group, and my sponsor is Susan W. Um, That kind of took me by surprise. I thought there was going to be a bunch of readings and everything. I had a couple more minutes to get it together. Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I... uh, I got out of bed this morning. Um, get at my tissues. <laughs> I got out of bed this morning and I um I got on my knees and um I just cried. I just cried. Normally I get on my knees and I just say the third step prayer and I go about my day and it's you know it's rote and I just go and and I just cried and cried and cried and um. The reason I did is because, um, well, I'm a little nervous. Yeah. Um, no, because I'm so honored to be here and this is such a, this is such a big deal. And last night, you know, Larry T just brought it home to me about, God, this is a big deal. This is, this is serious. This is, well, it's not serious necessarily, but it's, you know, it's life or death stuff. People are dying out there. And, um, and I don't, I don't get that sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm nine years sober and, and I, I love my home group and I love my sponsor and I love the friends that I have made in the rooms and I love what we do and, and I just do it and it's all, it's fun and it's, you know, we're all chatty and we get in our groups that we're comfortable with and, uh, and sometimes I forget how um, how serious this thing is. And, uh, you know, I was listening to uh, Holly yesterday. And it was the same thing. I was sitting there with four or five of my girlfriends, and I was listening to this eloquent speaker speak about character defects. And it was wonderful. And I was just, I was just there, and everything was fine. And then she got to jealousy. Wow. And, um, and she hit me where I live. And what happens for me when I'm in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I hear what I need to hear, the miracle happens. Um, you know, she started talking about jealousy and I just got really still and it's like, I can't move or I'm going to break apart. And what I'm waiting for, and why I'm not moving, is because I'm waiting for the solution. And she had it, you know, she told us what it was. And it's the same thing every time that I have to hear every day. You know, be honest with your sponsor. Show up. When AA asks you to do something, be available and say yes. And um, I'm so grateful that I was asked to speak. Um, My uh, life has just changed so dramatically in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I was thinking this morning, I can't do it like Polly did, and I can't do it like Larry did, but what I heard is I can do it like I do it, and I know how to be honest, and if nothing else, I can tell my story. 
So I grew up outside of Palmer on the Matanuska Glacier, not on the glacier, right next to it. (laughs) (laughs) By Caribou Creek, and as a two-little, two-bedroom cabin. My parents were hippies, and, uh, you know, they homeschooled me. And what I remember from my childhood is it was idyllic, you know. I remember my dad playing uh, Bob Dylan songs on his guitar, and my mom teaching me English and literature and... You know, the books that I was starting on when I was three and four were things about Van Gogh and, um, I don't know. It was, it was, it was amazing. We made all of our own food. We grew everything. Had a three-story greenhouse, lots of pot. And, um, <laughs> it was, it was great. It was a, it was a very good way to, to be raised. And, um, we left there when I was about 10 years old and we went to Indiana and, um, my dad was a, a very, very, very active alcoholic all of those years, and he was a he was a fun guy. He was not an abusive, mean alcoholic until later on down the road. But he had a little poker game going up here, and he lost the homestead and and the cabin, and so we were we were gone pretty much overnight and went back home to Indiana. And um, we lived in a 16-man army tent on my uncle's ranch for a while. And those were some pretty scary years for me. Um, you know, I'd never been to public school. And here I am, this little Alaskan hippie hillbilly girl who's used to running around barefoot and eating rabbit stew. And, uh, <laughs> And I'm thrust into a public school environment, and oh my God, you talk about not fitting in and not being, um, not fitting in. I did not fit in at all. Oh, and it was, uh, you know, I had, I had, you know, um, I hope someday I can talk without crying all the time. <laughs> But, you know, I wore whatever clothes my parents could come up with, um, which were sometimes nobody got up, nobody did any laundry, and I just put on whatever I had. So it was, you know, dirty, torn, whatever. Um, I didn't know anything about brushing my hair or taking a bath. And in the fourth grade, those things are starting to become important. You know, the girls are starting to notice this stuff. So now you may know I take a little extra time with my hair. A little more attention to the clothing. <sighs> it's just my time. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, early childhood was pretty wild. It was I, I was in the midst of some insane alcoholism, and um, so the first time I got to take a drink um, was back when we were living in Alaska, and all I remember is it was homebrew, and we stole it. And it was with all my friends, and it was wonderful. It was it was just great because I was with my friends, and we were having fun, and you know we got away with it, and no big deal. Nobody got hurt. I didn't get sick. It was nothing. So the first time I took a serious drink, I was 14 years old, and it was Silver Label Bacardi, and um, I was with my girlfriend, and we. This is when I was in Indiana. I, uh, we were partying on the campus of Indiana University. 
big, big party town. And we ended up at a uh, fraternity house. I was 14. And, uh, you know, I was drunk to the point of where I blacked out. And I was passed around um, by three or four guys. And it basically, um, that was it. That was my introduction into how I was going to live my life. You know, I went home that night, and I snuck in the back door, and my mom saw me, and um, she just basically had this look of horror and disgust. And I felt like, I felt like, okay, all right, it's all right. It's no big deal. And um, I was off and running from 14 until 28. And, um, you know, I that period, right before I quit drinking, 14 to 28, kind of a long period, but um, it was always the same. Every day it was the same. And it didn't matter if I was in high school or if I had started college or, you know, and there was always a different man. Um, I met a guy that was 32 when I was 16 and moved in with him. And he introduced me to uh, ecstasy and cocaine and heroin. And, and we had a really good time, actually. Um, <laughs> for a long time. Um, but it was the same thing, you know. I, I got drunk, stayed up till 2 or 3 in the morning, started doing the cocaine, stayed up till 9 or 10 the next day, and uh, then puked my guts up order a pizza about 2 o'clock, go to work, do the same thing all over again. And I did that for a long time, and I started working as a bartender when I was 21, I guess, and it was the greatest thing I could possibly imagine. My admirations were to be the best bartender the world has ever known. And um, <clears throat> I used to watch Cocktail over, over, <laughs> over, and... um. I mean, that was the life. I wore a bikini, and I stood behind a bathtub, and I served beers, and I made $500 a night. I had plenty of money for everything. I never, never had to buy drugs or alcohol. Um, it was always readily available from somebody. And what started to happen for me, um, I really, I really want to get into uh, the solution. But, you know, the last days of my drinking, um, the last years of my drinking, you know, my sponsor told me once that it's not necessarily the details, but it's about how we felt when we were experiencing that stuff. And um, I just got, it was more and more lonely. You know, I had people around me all the time. And um, I was doing all kinds of crazy things. Um, my, my drinking took me to places that Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization doesn't really describe it. And I, I get into that in detail when I speak at women's prisons. And um, God, isn't that funny? That's where I feel most at home, is in either a prison or a treatment center. And uh, oh, that's where the rubber meets the road for me. Um, get to tell all the details. I don't know why they're important, but sometimes they are for people to identify. But So... Um, it got to be disgusting, I mean, the way that I was living. And every time I'd start to get it together a little bit, um, I'd end up sleeping with somebody by accident. I'd end up, um, <laughs> as always, my best friend's boyfriend or my boss or my, 
um, my landlord, I mean, somebody. And it was just, I, I started to feel more and more like I have no worth. Um, I'm a disgusting human being. And there's just, uh, I don't have any, I don't, I don't see why I'm, I'm living. And it, suicide became an option. When I was younger, um, early, right before I started drinking, 14, I was a cutter too. And Polly talked about that. And um, I know other women in the rooms of AA who are cutters. And I completely understand them so well. Because every time that I took the razor blade and I was cutting, it was like I was releasing all of that poison and all of that toxin that had been built up in my soul. And um, <clears throat> the day I took my first drink, I didn't have to do that ever again. But it got back to that point um, where I just, I didn't know, I couldn't get the relief from alcohol and I couldn't get the relief from drugs. And I either had to kill myself or I had to find something else. And what happened was nothing that I did. Um, I was working at the bars, <clears throat> and I looked great. And everything was um, beautiful on the outside. You know, it's all sparkly and shiny. And, um, and I met this bartender who had been sober for seven years. And she asked me, she spotted me out of a crowd of, you know, 2,000 people. And she said, um, if you ever want to go to a meeting with me, just, you know, let me know. And I didn't know what she was talking about. I had no clue. I'd never heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never heard about anybody living sober. I did not know anything about that at all. And in the meantime, she introduced me to this guy who had just stepped foot out of a treatment center. Or a halfway house, actually. He had just overdosed on heroin. And she goes, you should really meet this guy. He's an amazing man. <laughs> and he was and um <clears throat> and I married him and uh but he took me to my first meetings um I went as a normie cuz I did I don't know how I could possibly go as a normie but I did I sat in NA meetings and CA meetings and um a few AA meetings and um it was great I mean I kind of sort of felt it maybe a little bit but I I really wasn't ready um, and Larry was talking about this alcoholics are, um, always naked at some point in our time, buck naked. <laughs> my last couple of days of drinking, I am, um, oh my gosh, I, my vanity got me sober. I am, um, I really believe it's kind of what pushed me over the edge. The horrible, incomprehensible demoralization was a big part of it. But when they started looking at me and pointing out, you know, Melissa, I saw this this lady walking down the steps when I was bartending and she had this big gold lame blouse on and smoking like three cigarettes and her hair's all a mess, stumbling down the steps. And one of the other bartenders looks at me and goes, look, that's going to be you in like two years. And I just freaked out. I just <laughs> lost my mind. <clears throat> So the the heroin addict guy that I married, um, he got a Corvette, and he was going out, and I was really upset about that. And I uh, I was standing on the balcony of our little apartment, naked, screaming at him. And the neighbors walk by. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I was just I was incensed. I how oh, I could not believe that I was doing this. Um, so a, a lot of my getting sober was about my vanity. But it's so okay. That that happened. 
And the next day, I found out I was um, pregnant. And when I found out I was pregnant, something happened. I don't know what it was. Um, I know that I did go into the bathroom. I know that I got on my knees. And I know that I asked God for help. I don't know the prayer and how it happened. But I have never had to take a drink or a drug since. Um, that's where it started. The first meeting I went to was after my son was born. And um, he was just a couple days old. And I went to my first meeting. And it was at a treatment center. And I um, I heard this guy talking from the podium about being um, growing up on a college campus and how he drank in the dorms and the keggers. And I identified with another alcoholic the first time in my life. And what he had to say impacted me so strongly because I felt like it's that solution. I felt like there was some hope. I felt like, you know, I'm home. And everybody talks about that big sigh of relief. <sighs> I'm home, and um, I think that's why it's so important for me to try to be as honest as I possibly can, not only about what it was like and what happened, but what it's like now, because, you know, I've been around here for a long time, and I have done this program so strangely. Um, <laughs> my first meeting, I'm a year stone cold sober. And I'm at the treatment center, and I hear this guy talking, and I relate to what he has to say. And afterwards, um, that they asked afterwards for birthdays. And I said, oh, I got a year. And uh, somebody said, oh, well, get up and tell us how you did it. <laughs> and I did, and I cannot imagine what I told those poor people. <laughs> Yeah, I basically just stay at my apartment and read my boyfriend's big book to see what he's underlined so I can decipher what he's doing. <laughs> call the phone numbers in there. Susie, call him. Why are you calling my husband? No. <laughs> That's all I did. I just tortured my husband. Um, so I was there, and after I shared my experience, strength, and hope from the podium, <laughs> this lady came up, and it was... The guy who had spoke, it was his wife. And she goes, I think I'm going to be your sponsor. Um, <laughs> I said, okay. I, I didn't even know what a sponsor was. And, uh, you know, she was like six feet tall and 400 pounds and wore overalls. And she had scars. And she was kind of scary. And, um, but she took me home that night to her trailer. And um, and they did things that I had, I had never seen in my life. I had never seen this in my entire life. She talked to her husband like this. She'd say, hey, honey, are you going to do the dishes tonight or is it my turn? And he'd go, oh, no, 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 I'll take care of it. You don't worry about it. I'll put the food away too. And she'd say, oh, thank you. I've never heard that kind of talk before. I don't know what that means. I don't, I, I don't, I don't get that at all. And... um. We went and we got on our knees and we did steps one and two and said the third step prayer together. And that's when I had my first spiritual experience there in her little, her little trailer. And um, it was shortly thereafter that I decided she was far too intrusive. Um, <laughs> she was concerning herself with things that I really could take care of. Um, like him, you know, my psychopathic ex-murderer, 
she was going, she would ask me questions, really simple questions like, do you like the way he talks to you? Well, he, yes, I do. I, I, I understand him. He's got these issues and he's having a rough day. And, and, uh, and you know, it's so funny. I've been coming to these conferences and meetings for a while, um, big ones, and I'm getting to know some of the Al-Anons. And a couple of them were asking me yesterday, you know, update them on the story of the psychopathic axe murderer. So I'm going to have to make sure I fill them in on that. But, um, she was just getting really, really involved in my life and asking me to do things I was not interested in doing. You know, I had a, a child and I was staying at home. I was not working, um, but I was very busy. I was uh, writing a children's book. I was I had a little mural business going. Uh, I was raising my son, um, trying to make sure the house was clean and the dinners were perfect for him when he got home. And uh, she kept asking me about going to meetings and um, being a part of AA. And I finally just I stopped calling her back. Um, well, we did do we did get through the fourth and the fifth step and. What she did for me is, I, I think what has helped me stay sober all of these years, is we did the four step. I did it to the best of my ability, and I shared it with her. And that night, she called me up, and she said, Melissa, is there anything that you left out? No, no, there's nothing I left out. I told you everything, every dark, deep, horrible secret. And she called me again. She said, Melissa, is there anything that you left out? And I said, yeah, there's one thing. And I told it to her. And it was the secret that I was going to take to my grave. It was the thing that's so despicable that, you know, no one could ever possibly love me. And I told her, and she just goes, okay, great, you've completed your fifth step now. I want you to go do six and seven. And I did. And, um, you know, I, I suppose that that's the only reason I've got to stay around these rooms for all of these years doing the program the way that I do it, is that I got that out. But, um, you know, after that, she just got too involved in my life, and I, I had to let her go. And um <laughs> was sad. but So for two years, I sponsored myself, um, year two and three. And what happened in those two years change the course of history. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, my husband went back out and when he goes back out, people die. Um, so that was bad. Uh, <laughs> I spent a couple of years trying to get away from him and I did. I had to change my name and my social security number and move across the country and lose contact with everyone I've ever known. But uh, we took care of that. Um, during that time, when I was trying to get away from him, I drove all over the country with my my baby, my little dog, and uh, it was just going from one insane thing to another insane thing. And I got really involved in the Pentecostal church and I started evangelizing for the church. And, you know, I was carrying the message to, that message to uh, people in prison then. Um, and it was great. I loved the church. I loved the church. It basically said, don't worry about taking any responsibility for yourself. We're going to show you how to do everything. And if you do it just right, everything will be okay. And um, 
I couldn't do it just right, and everything wasn't okay. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And um, what happened is, what good that came out of that was I was able to develop a relationship with my higher power. That is, uh, I am very, very clear about who my higher power is and what he can do. I have, I have seen literal miracles, spiritual miracles, metaphorical miracles, every type of miracle I've seen them. And so I have that solid foundation, but I'm still not involved in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm still slowly going more and more and more crazy, and I'm staying busier and busier and busier, because when I set my mind to it, I can work my butt off. I mean, I start three or four businesses. I have people. I, I can organize things. I can get resumes together. I can make money. I can take care of my son. I can take care of myself. I can get the new houses. I can get the new cars, and I can do it, and I just... You know, getting wound tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, and um, something was gonna something was gonna give. And he found us again. And um, that time I had to go into a shelter in Dallas, Texas. And they moved us across the country in the middle of the night. Um, I think it probably saved our lives, but I don't know. Uh, and I got up here. I came back here, and. Um, now, I was here for a couple of weeks, and my son, who's now two and a half years old, is just getting, he's getting to the point where I am going to kill myself or I'm going to put him up for adoption. I mean, he is driving me absolutely insane, and I don't know what to do. And the only thing I know how to do is maybe I'll go back to a meeting. And um, I walked into the 10 spot. At 9.30 on a Friday night, and there were people here that welcomed me, and they greeted me. And I saw one walk in the back, um, Bill, and I reached out his hand, and he said, welcome. And once again, I felt like I was at home. So I started going to meetings again, and I made Sunshine my home group. And I showed up late, and I left early. And I went to see what the guys were doing. You know, are you single yet? I know you're in a relationship, but around here, two weeks ought to do it. I can wait. And you know, what I've discovered is the really sick ones announced their availability very clearly. Yeah, my dog died. My girlfriend left. My phone number is 555-2732. All the sick girls in the back right now. But, um... So I'm going to that meeting, a couple of years, and my son is getting crazier and crazier and crazier, or I'm getting crazier and crazier and crazier. Both of us are. I start taking him to psychologists. I start taking him to therapists. He's pronounced as ADD, uh, attention deficit disorder and hyperactive, and he's got bipolar, and he is, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the other one? Um, Something just so, I, I don't know what it was, but there's three or four things. So I, I, I'm making a little folder. I've got all these doctors and their, their cards in there, and I've got all these diagnoses, and I've got uh, just all this stuff. I'm getting help from the state, and I'm getting help from all these different people. And basically what it comes down to is just medicate the hell out of the boy. So we give him Adderall and Depakote and this and that, and I... I can breathe again. He's taking drugs and I can breathe again. And um 
and what I saw happen to him. <clears throat> I don't know where he went. But you know what? I had to go to work. I had to go to school. I had to take care of myself. Because I don't know about being in these rooms and letting a higher power take care of me. I don't have a sponsor telling me what I need to do. I'm trying to do it myself. And, um... So I'm sitting in sunshine. And I'm listening. And I showed up late, of course. And, um, there's this woman talking about, and I've listened to her before, and she's talking about things that just, I, I don't see how she could be so eloquent. Um, and what she's basically talking about is things out of the big book, which I hadn't picked up in four years. And she talks about being rocketed into the fourth dimension and having it all, you know, not just being sober, not just not drinking, but having it all. She talks about her family and her relationship with her children. And I want what she has. And for the first time in my life, or the second time, I guess, is um, I want what somebody else has. And I'm just a little bit willing to maybe do what they say, just a little bit. And I talked to her after the meeting, and she said, are you willing to try a couple things? And I said, um, yeah, I guess so. And she told me in the mornings to get on my knees, say the third step prayer, and ask for three ways to be of service to other human beings. And um, I've done that every day since then. And that was about, I think it was four years ago, maybe five years ago. And as a result of having a sponsor and being willing to um, do and take some of her suggestions, my life got better and better and better and better. And she introduced me to the Glacier Group. And, uh, gosh, I'm sorry. You know, the first time I went to the Glacier, Glacier Group, it was 12 people or something. And I showed up late in my sweatpants and flip-flops, and I sat in the back, and I slouched, and I grimaced. And and uh, I, I thought it was stupid. It was ridiculous. <laughs> well, why would you dress up? You've been dressed up all day at work. you know. And uh, somebody said somewhere along the line about having a little respect for the program that saved your life. Uh, oh, all right. And um, and gradually I started to hear things about what was going on there, and I started to go, and I and I, I kept going back. And in the meantime, my son is still heavily medicated, and he's gone, you know, and he's at school, and problems are still happening. And um, I start working on my my things, and and uh, I start doing step work again, and I start letting go of some fears, and I start letting go of of some character defects that I've held on to for so long. And I got my first um, job that I absolutely love. You know, I, I, I remember distinctly taking that step off that ledge and hoping that something was going to catch me. And, um, and he did. And I've never looked back. I've been at that same job, um, except for a brief hiatus, um, for almost five years now. And, you know, I get to do what I love. I love my job. I love that. My boss is actually here, so I really love my job. 
But um, you know that that's just one thing. That's one of the things that it, that it, the miracles that have come to pass. You know, Polly talked about great events will come to pass, and I was thinking about those. You know, great events have come to pass, and um, okay, so I'm working with a sponsor, sort of, sort of doing the things that she suggests. My life is starting to get a little bit better. I'm starting to look at alternative solutions for uh, for Dylan. And um, I start getting really rebellious. And, uh, you know, pretty soon, all these great things that are happening in my life... Um, I could have done them myself. You know, I just needed to be in the right spot. I needed to be dressing the right way. I just, I just needed to be doing, you know, being at the right job. I needed to have the right friends. It's not what I'm doing on a daily basis that is is giving me all this stuff. And I I, I just have to thank Larry again. I, you know, um, God, you just made it so clear for me that That how important this is. I mean, what we're doing right now today. And if you uh, if you missed yesterday and you you didn't get to hear them and to get their CDs, boy, I'd really highly recommend it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.